Before we get into the 13th chapter of the book of John, I want to sort of set the stage for you if I can. And I want you to think about uh, what's on the screen and what I'm reading to you. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him. And for him, for he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. But Thomas said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And a week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas worshiped and said, My Lord and my God. Well. (laughs) Okay. Never mind. Exodus, Exodus 3, where Moses is asking um, God, who shall I tell you? Who should I tell the nation of Israel that is sending me? And God said to Moses, I am who I am, he said. Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent you. John 8 says, very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. And at this, they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself away, slipping away from the temple grounds. Psalm 103, praise the Lord, my soul. All my innermost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases. Mark 2, a few days later, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. And they gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. And since they could not get to him because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, My son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take up your mat, and walk. 
But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take up your mat, and go home. My prayer for us this morning is that God would open our eyes to see who Jesus truly is. In the beginning, God created. In the first chapter of the Gospel of John, it's the word that brings all things into being. He is the one that holds all things together. The term I am is the name by which God revealed himself to Moses. And time and again, Jesus uses that term for himself. He alone can forgive sins. Consider as we look into John 13, who Jesus is. Let's pray. Jesus, give us eyes to see you as you are. Give us a mind and a heart to follow your example and grant us the grace to serve and to love one another. I ask this in your name, Jesus, the name which is above every name. Amen. John 13 begins the end or starts what or is the tail end of Jesus' public ministry. From here, from John 13 to the end of the chapter, his ministry is directed exclusively at his disciples. Last week, Pastor Eric talked about the Gentiles came to Jesus and they asked him a question. And Jesus said, the hour is now upon us. But now the hour is truly upon him, beginning in uh, John 13, 1. It says, just before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. And having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Last week in John 12, 23, Jesus talks about the hour that is coming. And then he uses a, a parable that talks about unless a seed dies, it cannot produce more fruit. Well, this, in this chapter, Jesus defines and clar- clarifies us what he is talking about, uh, about this hour that is coming. He speaks more clearly about the hour that it has arrived. He is about to leave this world and return to the Father. Jesus is about to be restored to his place of glory, power, and majesty. And he is fully aware of the path that lies in front of him. He knows the course that has been set for him. And in spite of what he is about to encounter, he affirms again his love for his disciples. And in this, in the, this context, it's directed solely at the twelve. He wants them to know, regardless of what path he is about to walk, that his love for them has not been diminished. He loves them absolutely. I think the King James says he loves them to the uttermost. Continuing in in verse 2, And the evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. And Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. We have two statements really held in tension here. We see Satan's work in Judas and the authority that Jesus had received from the Father. Jesus is fully aware that Judas is about to betray him, that Judas is about to sell him out for 30 pieces of silver. Jesus also knew who he was. And I think John brings us to the fore to remind us that as Jesus goes to the cross, 
He does it fully knowing that should he so choose, he could have stopped it. Remember in the garden when Peter, when the the soldiers of the high priest are there and Peter takes out his sword and lops off the ear of of Matthias, the high priest. And Jesus stops Peter and says, Peter, don't you realize that so, if I should so choose that I could have a myriad of angels here at this point to release me? Don't you realize the authority, Peter, that I have? I think Jesus, I think the Apostle John is letting us know the same detail here and now. Satan has just prompted Judas to betray him, but all authority has been given to Jesus. When Jesus goes to the cross, he goes in submission to the Father's will, and he goes fully knowing that should he so choose, he could prevent it. He knew who he was. He had come from the glories of heaven and he understood that he was returning there. And in spite of the fact that the devil was in the work at work in the life of Judas, he was not ordering the events that Jesus was about to encounter because all authority has been given to him. So confident of this, confident of who he is and the authority he possesses, Continuing in verse 4, he says, He got up from the meal and took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. There is absolutely no record in any ancient Jewish or Greco-Roman literature of the master washing the feet of his disciples. It is, his act here is utterly unique and it is unprecedented. But so much of Jesus' ministry was unprecedented. The crowds would say, who is this guy teaching like this? He teaches as one that has authority. And we find that he does. The rabbis of that time would actually, what they would do is they would mimic the teaching that they had been taught. Jesus comes and gives them a new teaching of grace, of God's great love for them. And they are astounded. Jesus' teaching was unprecedented. His miracles. He raised the dead. He healed the sick. He released those oppressed by demonic oppression. His power was unprecedented. And his great love for the people where he encompassed and embraced those that had been marginalized by society. Jesus' love was unprecedented as well. And foot washing was so menial a task that in Jewish households that had slaves, they would not allow a Jewish slave to wash a person's feet. It was relegated to Gentile slaves. But here the one who possesses authority given to him by God takes off his outer clothing and washes the defeat, his feet, washes the feet of his disciples. And who was included in this act? I want us to realize that Judas had his feet washed by Jesus. We don't get the idea that when Jesus came to Judas that he sort of bypassed him and said, oh yeah, I'm not going to do yours. He washed Judas' feet. There is almost the sense that Jesus hoped that this final act of humility and service would somehow move Judas to resist the demonic prompting while there was still time and turn from the plan that he had already set in motion. 
Jesus humbles and abases himself to such a degree that he washes Judas' feet, knowing full well he was about to betray him. And then Jesus comes to Peter, and Peter, in typical Peter fashion, tries to tell Jesus what he can do. He came to Peter who said to them, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. And the way the Greek sentence is structured, there's really the emphasis on the pronouns where he says, you, Peter talking to Jesus, are not going to wash my feet. There were many instances where Peter overstepped his bounds. When Jesus began to teach in Matthew that he was going to be crucified, that the, that the religious leaders and authorities were going to kill them, Peter very boldly and very bravely says, this isn't going to happen to you, Lord. Jesus rebukes him. There were many times where Peter oversteps his bounds, but in this case, his response is understandable. He realized that Jesus was his master, and he was the disciple. And he realized what Jesus was attempting and about to do was beyond the bounds of normal behavior between those two individuals. But Jesus replied, you don't realize what I'm doing but later you will. And I don't think Jesus is talking about the explanation in the next few verses. But I think he's saying, Peter, after my death, burial, and resurrection, you and the others will understand the significance of what I have just done. Then they and we will understand the extent of his love and the depths to which it will take Jesus. There is an immediate explanation that Jesus is about to address that there's a future understanding as well. But Peter says, no, you will never wash my feet. And again, the the Greek is structured so it's emphasized. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part of me. Jesus takes off the gloves here and gives a glimpse of what is really going on, what they will understand in the future. Jesus' actions here convey more than servant leadership but the necessity of accepting and receiving Christ and the provision that he has made. Peter cannot wash himself. Jesus tells Peter, if I don't wash you, you have no part of me. And then Peter says, well, don't just wash my feet. Wash my hands and my head as well. And Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean and you are clean, though not every one of you, for he knew who was going to betray him. And that is why he said not everyone was clean. During Jesus' time, it was the custom if you were going to a house for a celebration that you bathed prior to leaving. And uh, when you got there, the only thing that was dirty were your feet, wearing sandals in a dirt, in a, uh, on a dirt road. So a servant would come and wash their feet. And Jesus uses this custom to teach a vital lesson as he transitions, I believe, from the physical to the spiritual. Peter didn't need a bath. Peter, you've already been, you've already been made clean. And in John 15, 3, Jesus tells his disciples that they have been made clean by the word that he has spoken to them. They had heard and trusted Christ They had heard the words that Jesus spoke regarding his great love and God's great love for them. And they submitted themselves fully acknowledging and trusting in what God has done. They had been made clean, but Jesus says, not all of you. Judas and Judas alone 
had not, been, had not embraced what Christ had spoken to them, and he was unclean. And when he had fishing, finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you, he asked them? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. And very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Jesus gives the immediate answer that he's trying to instill. And understand the four Gospels look at, the, at this time where the, the disciples are gathered together and they're participating in the Passover meal. They look at it from different perspectives. And not every element of what was going on is included in every Gospel. So in Luke 22, we find, surprisingly enough, that the context from which Jesus' foot washing arises is where the disciples are having an argument about who is the greatest. You can just imagine them talking about, hey, you remember when we raised the sick or, where we, or raised the dead or healed the sick? Oh yeah, remember that demon-possessed girl that, that was just delivered because of what we did? Jesus had given the authority and the, and the mission to accomplish those things. And possibly somehow they had forgotten where that authority and power had come from. And we're trying to debate who was the greatest. And out of the midst of that argument and that debate, Jesus gets up from the meal, takes off his outer garments, wraps a towel around his waist, and begins to wash their feet. Jesus took the position of the lowest slave, and washed their feet. How those words about greatness must have stuck in their throat like a dry crust of bread. But, and look at the contrast. Jesus was their rabbi. Jesus was their teacher. He was the one to whom they had pledged obedience. And he was also their Lord. And this means more then he was their boss. Because in the first century, Jews used the term Lord to refer to God. The one who was their rabbi, their teacher, the one who was their Lord had just washed their feet. How could they think about their own greatness? He humbled himself to the lowest of the low so that they should never think that something is too petty or too low for them to do, a task that is beneath them, that someone was so low on the totem pole that they could not be served. So if Jesus is our master, if Jesus is our teacher, I ask this question, should we not we be willing to serve as he served? And where are we doing this? How are we currently serving as Jesus and then later, Jesus had also told Peter that later the group would understand what he was doing. And I believe here is sort of the spiritual teaching of, the, of what he had just done. Um, and that we can never get clean on our own. It is impossible by our own efforts, regardless of how earnest or how sincere they are, to clean up the mess that sin 
has made of our lives. We have to allow the work of Christ, his sacrifice as he bore our punishment, to make us clean. If we resist and insist on doing it on our own, then we, like Peter at this juncture where we refuse to be washed, will have no part in him. If we trust in what he has done for us, Jesus says that we are clean. So I ask ask you the question this morning. What are you trusting in to make you clean? Are you trusting in Sunday attendance? You show up here every Sunday at at 9.15 or 11 o'clock. You work in Sunday school. You come and serve in Awana. You give online regularly. You read your Bible. What are you trusting in? Because it is in Christ and Christ alone that we can be made clean. Continuing on in verse 18. I am not referring to all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But this is to fulfill the passage of Scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. And I'm telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. And very truly I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me. And whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. And after he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, very truly I tell you. One of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at the loss to know which of them he meant. So one of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, this is the Apostle John, was reclining next to him. And Simon Peter motioned to his disciples and said, Ask him which one he means. And leaning back against Jesus, he asked, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. And then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, what you are about to do, do quickly. But no one at the table understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought that Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. And as soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. This passage begins with Jesus citing a a verse out of Psalm 41, where David laments the treacherous act of a friend. To eat at the table of another, especially one who is your superior, and Jesus was their rabbi and their Lord, so he certainly occupied the position of, uh, of authority and superiority. To eat at that kind of table was a pledge of loyalty and friendship. Judas's present at, presence at this table as he ate with Jesus should have been a declaration of his allegiance. But being prompted by the devil, he was scheming all kinds of heinous things. He was waiting to lift up his heel against his Savior. The term literally means lifting up the heel like a horse about to kick. It was a betrayal of the most heinous sort. What Judas was about to do was reprehensible. And Jesus Jesus wants his disciples to know that this betrayal is not blindsiding him. He knows it is about to happen. So he tells them, he uses his foreknowledge of what is about to happen as evidence of deity. 
infallible knowledge of what is going to happen is one of the prerogatives of God himself. And just so that the 12, his disciples, don't miss the point, Jesus uses the phrase, I am who I am, that we've seen in Exodus 2 is the divine name. Jesus wanted them to understand that this isn't taking me unawares. This isn't blindsiding me. I know very well what is about to happen. And in my divine capacity, I'm predicting it and telling you because I am who I am. And Jesus is not unaffected by what he is about to undergo. He's not unaffected by what Judas is about to do. The Apostle John says he is troubled in spirit. Two other times in the Gospel of John, we find that Jesus is troubled in spirit. The first is in chapter 11, where Jesus comes uh, and encounters the grieving family and friends of a man he loved, Lazarus. And as he is greeted by them, as he sees the turmoil that uh, Lazarus' death has created, he's troubled in spirit. We were not meant, as Pastor Eric told us a couple of weeks ago, we were not meant for death. We were meant for life. But death invaded God's good creation when Adam and Eve willfully chose to disregard God's single command. And death has affected all of us. And as Jesus encounters those who are just overwhelmed by grief because of Lazarus' death, He's troubled in spirit. The second time in the Gospel of John is when Jesus contemplates his own death and its awful elements. Understand that Jesus' death was terrible. After his arrest, he was beaten by the Praetorian Guard. After his visitation to Herod and coming back to Pilate, Pilate decided to have him scourged. And that scourging was horrific. And then they nailed him to a cross. Jesus understood the physical suffering that he was about to undergo. And he also understood the anguish that he would cry from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That the one with whom he had been in fellowship from all eternity turned his back on him because Christ bore the sin of mankind. And when Jesus contemplates that and knows that there is not going to be some sort of divine anesthesia to somehow buffer that suffering, he is troubled in spirit. Judas's betrayal was on the same level. One commentator says that Jesus' whole inner self convulses at the thought of one of his closest friends betraying him to his enemies. And Judas's deception was so thorough that the rest of the band, the other 11, had no idea it was going to be him. He had dressed himself up in all the religious finery so that the, those closest to him did not know the evil that dwelt in his heart. Judas did apostle stuff when Jesus sent the 12 out to, to raise the dead, to heal the sick, to, to free the oppressed. Judas participated in that. Judas was given authority by his rabbi, by his Lord, to accomplish those things. Judas saw the 5,000 people being fed. Judas Judas participated in every sort of of family life of the the band of 12. 
But those who were closest to him had no idea what he was planning. And what is really crazy is this. Since, they did the, since the rest of the apostles didn't know who it was, Peter sort of motioned to John and said, Hey, ask Jesus who it is. In this kind of setting, uh, they ate a meal in a sort of a U-shaped table. And they ate reclined, lying on their left side so they could eat with their right hand. What lefties did, I have no idea. They just had to make do, I suppose. So Peter asked John to find out who the betrayer is. And John's gospel says that, so John laid his head against Jesus' chest and asked him who it is. So John was to Jesus' right. So if you can make that picture. And Jesus' response was, I'm going to give a piece of bread dipped in the, in these, the spices. And the one I give it to is the one who's going to betray me. And you find no evidence, and, and I believe John is very thorough and very calculated when he wrote his gospel to give us a, an accurate account of what goes on. We don't find Jesus getting up and taking the bread to Jesus. There's no mention that he got up and walked to where, I'm sorry, Judas was. Judas was immediately to his left. At the head table, the host let those who were closest to him, the one he considered his closest friends, stay there. Jesus, knowing full well that Judas was about to betray him, placed him in a position of honor. Again, perhaps with the hope that there might be a change of heart, but there, it was to no avail. But Jesus served him one last time. And when Judas takes the bread from the hand of Jesus, the hand that Judas had seen heal the sick, raise the dead, feed the 5,000, Satan enters into him. In the Gospels, Jesus and his disciples frequently encountered those who had been demonized, where unclean spiritual forces, unclean spiritual entities had taken up residence in people. But there is only one place where Satan, the prince of this world, the prince of the power of the air, is said to enter an individual. And it's right here. Can you imagine the horror at this particular juncture that Judas must have undergone when the prince of evil entered into him? He yielded to the devil's prompting and, the, and is now possessed by him. We don't know a lot about Judas outside of the, the some glimpses, the very limited glimpses that we find in the Gospels. So why he succumbed to the temptation, the prompting, and was then possessed, uh, it's unclear, but it must have been horrific at that particular point, even for him. So Jesus tells him to do quickly what he has planned. The hour has come and now is fully upon them. The die is cast and Judas leaves. And the disciples don't, they're going, what's this all about? Why is Judas leaving? And I think John knew, but he doesn't share it with the rest. Uh, they're assuming that uh, there's some pressing need that Judas must either go and since he was the treasurer, give alms to the poor or maybe buy some supplies for the coming festival. 
Um, but they're unsure of why Judas gets up and leaves. We're privy to it. And then the Apostle John says, when he leaves, it was night. And I don't think the Apostle John is making a casual observation that he looked outside and go, oh, it's gotten dark, or sort of giving him a time check. It's, it's pretty late. In John chapter 9, verse 4, Jesus tells his disciples, as long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. Night has now arrived. The light of the world is about to be extinguished. The light of the world is about to leave. And until the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, the world will linger in darkness. And when he was gone in verse 31, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. And Simon Peter asked, Lord, where are you going? Where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. The cross is not an occasion of defeat, but one where Jesus and his father were glorified. This is not the darkest hour, but the hour of glorification. This is not a defeat, but a victory. And Jesus is so confident of the reality of the victory, so confident of the reality of the glorification, that he uses the aorist tense in the Greek, which is typically used as the past tense. He is so certain of what is about to happen, he can speak of it as already have happened. Though it's on the horizon, Jesus views it as complete. He says, now, even though he was headed towards the cross, the Son of Man is glorified. Now God is glorified in him. But how is Jesus and the Father glorified in what is about to happen? How is there glory in the cross? The cross is the triumph of God's righteousness and the triumph of his love. Who God is does not allow him to say sin doesn't matter. Sin, where those created in his image and likeness tell their creator to take a hike, is is an offense to God's character and his position as sovereign. Sin matters. And God cannot gloss over it, turn his back on it, and say, ollie, ollie, oxen free. He must respond. And his response should be a consuming fire where we are unmade and consigned to eternal separation from him. But the cross is a glory, a triumph, because God, since God loves those he created, he provides the one who will suffer his fierce wrath in our place. 
Sin is therefore punished and pardon can be offered to those who have placed their trust in Christ. God's righteousness is elevated in the cross and God's love for us is elevated in the cross for they meet and God is able to offer pardon to us because of what Jesus has done. But Christ's glorification will entail that he be separated from his disciples. They can't follow him to the cross They can't follow him into the depths of hell where his victory is announced and they cannot follow him into the presence of the Father. What Jesus is about to suffer, and suffer he did, he suffers alone. But in 36 there is the promise that even though the disciples can't follow him now, they'll follow him later. And tradition tells us that each of the 11 who are hearing Jesus' words at this juncture will suffer for his name. Each will be martyred for their faith. And at their death, they followed Jesus into the presence of the Father. And Peter, in his usual brash and impetuous way, declares that he is ready to follow Jesus now. If it means death, so be it. And Jesus asked him, really? You're really ready to die for me? You're ready to follow me regardless of the cross? And you can just imagine Peter's affirmation. You bet, Lord, I'm with you. I'm right here. Here's my sword. Let's go. And what Jesus tells Peter must have smacked him upside the head like a two by four. Before the rooster crows, you're going to deny that you know me, not just once, but three times. Your bravado will vanish in the face of a simple servant girl's question. Peter, you're not ready to die with me. You're going to be turning tail and running not too long. But there will be a time where you'll follow me later, Peter. And tradition says that Peter was crucified upside down because he didn't feel he was worthy to be crucified in the same manner as his master. But later tonight, Peter, you're going to disown me. And it is here that Jesus gives his disciples a new commandment to love one another. But what's new about this commandment? Throughout the Gospels, Jesus says the two greatest commandments are to love the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Love's not a new gig here. But what is new about this commandment is this, that we are to love one another, and it finds its greatest example in Jesus' love for us. It also becomes the evidence that we are followers of Christ. So what's new here is what love looks like. It is to look like the love that Jesus had for his disciples. It is to be the love that Jesus loved for us. Jesus humbled himself, so our love must be humble. Jesus' love was persistent, so our love must be persistent. Jesus' love was sacrificial, so ours must be. And Jesus' love was unconditional. And we must strive to be unconditional as well. I'd like to close with a uh, reading part of a NIV commentary that sums this up. The command to love has its first application within the body of Christ. When a non-Christian steps foot inside the church, this should be his or her first observation. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. In the early 3rd century, Tertullian wrote, it is mainly the deeds of a love so noble 
that lead many to put a brand upon us. See, they say, how they love one another. See how they are ready even to die for one another. In the earliest church, the social caring and commitment of Christians, Christians to one another was a profound testimony in a Roman world with its sharp social divisions. Nothing so astonishes a fractured world as a community in which radical, faithful, genuine love is shared among its members. There are many places you can go to find communities of shared interest. There are many places you can go to find people just like yourself who live for sports or music or gardening or politics. But it is the mandate of the church to become a community of love, a circle of Christ followers who invest in one another because Christ has invested in them, who exhibit love not based upon the mutuality and attractiveness of its members, but on the model of Christ who washed the feet of everyone, including Judas. Let's pray. Jesus, we look at your example of humility and service. We look at your example of sacrifice. And you call upon us to love one another. May you grant grace to help us love persistently, to help us love unconditionally, to love humbly for your honor and your glory. In Christ's name, amen.